Acts chapter 5. So Acts 5, we pick up, uh, we go and pick up where we left off at verse 12. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. We'll continue our reading through the end of the chapter. You may notice uh, in this morning's reading the pattern to which we've grown somewhat accustomed here in the book of Acts. Back in chapter 2, you remember uh, the great event of Pentecost, the breaking out of the Holy Spirit on the people and the influx of new believers into the church, but then came imprisonment for Peter and John. Then we saw the church at its best, her members overflowing in generosity and in love for one another that sends her to a mountaintop, after which there comes a valley. Ananias and Sapphira supply that with their lives to the Holy Spirit and divine executions as a result of those lies. Now we're going to read about multitudes of people bringing their sick into the streets in the hopes that even Peter's shadow will fall upon them as he passes by. So great and so many have been the wonders and signs that have been done by the hands of the apostles. But continuing the pattern, those same apostles find themselves in prison and worse. Maybe you live your lives like sometimes I do, uh, looking for the plateau, hoping that it's going to come, looking for that wonderful point at which, you know, the, the struggles are going to end, life's going to finally become a, just a little more even-keeled, so to speak. The topsy-turvy waves that batter your vessel about will smooth Maybe you're looking for that day for the church when conflicts and troubles without and within will finally settle into a regular and happy pattern. Well, you, you may keep looking, but you will not likely find that place, not in this life anyway. The church and her members continue to struggle, continue to long For the city with foundations, keep longing, Christians, for your longing will ultimately be satisfied. It will. It will. But first we must follow our spiritual fathers and mothers through the storms of this life. Through the mountaintops, to be sure, but also into the valleys Happier days and more difficult that lead, indeed, to Christ and to heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to enter now into this history of our spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith who lived a couple of thousand years ago, but with whom we share everything in common, everything that really matters and everything that is really True, true truth, capital T truth. So, Father, help us to join them and to learn from them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's Portico. 
None of the rest dared join them. It's been a couple of weeks since we read it, but uh, Ananias and Sapphira are still freshly uh, on their minds. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, one commentator notes here a, a, a sense of humor, uh, a bit of humor woven into this text. We're, we're reading this, of course, from what we might call the divine point of view. We know that they've been freed. We know that they're at daybreak at the temple. But the high priest hasn't a clue. He's still gathering his guys together, having no idea that Right over at the temple, the preaching's going on, and he thinks they're still in the Huskow. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned. By the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 
When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in high honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. A few weeks ago here in this sanctuary, we pressed our faces to the window of the book of Acts and watched and listened as a group of apostles and early Christians with them joined together in prayer after Peter and John's release from their first imprisonment, praying not to be delivered from oppression, not to avoid tribulation, not to be left alone by those who hated them, not for any of those things, but for one thing, boldness. That they would be bold in speaking the word that they had received from Jesus. That they would not cower in the hour of testing, but proclaim Christ, proclaim King Jesus, speak the word of God boldly. This week, looking through that same window, we witnessed the answer to that prayer. God answers prayers. Finding themselves once again before the council, not just Peter and John, but this time all of the apostles, for disobeying the previous orders they had received from the council, the seats ceased preaching Christ to the people and commanded once again to stop preaching in this name. The council couldn't even get themselves to pronounce his name, Jesus, out loud. They, the apostles, answered boldly, we must obey God rather than men. And then obeying God, Peter launches into a sermon on the spot, right there, before the council, preaches to them. And it's not difficult to imagine, based on what we read later in the book of Acts, that some of these council members were converted then or soon after through means of that very sermon that Peter preached to them. 
But, of course, it was a bold move on Peter's part. Daring to preach to those leaders, ecclesiastical and political. The leaders of his day and place. The very leaders who had just recently nailed Jesus to the cross with the Romans. In fact, it was a sermon about Jesus through and through. It was a sermon that began with obedience. Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. It ended the same way with obedience. Verse 32. And in between, Jesus. Jesus crucified by the council, hanging him on the tree in the hopes that God would curse him. As They read from Deuteronomy 21. Jesus raised by the God of their fathers. Jesus exalted by God as leader and savior. Jesus who gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. Not interested in defending themselves, not in the least. They uplift King Jesus. And that to a group of people for whom the very mention of Jesus' name Every mention was like another stab with a dagger. What boldness. From from whence this, this dauntless courage of theirs? Well, remember where we've been in the book of Acts. Remember Pentecost back in chapter 2. That event casts a long shadow over the rest of these chapters. The Holy Spirit lives in them animates them, energizes, strengthens, emboldens, teaches them, puts his words in their hearts and on their tongues and removes all fear from them. And when they bring you to trial, Jesus had taught them, had promised his disciples while he was with them. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, dear flock, buckle your seatbelts. The same Holy Spirit who lived in them spoke through them. Transform them from common men into uncommonly brave heralds of the gospel. That same Holy Spirit lives in you. It was because of him in their hearts, him in their mouths, that the apostles turned the world upside down for Christ. And the Spirit lives in you for the very same Reason and purpose. And therefore the same confidence must mark you too. As mark these apostles. We must, brothers and sisters, we must obey God. And judging from the current direction of our culture, unless the Lord brings about a great course correction in things, obeying God is not going to get easier for us. For you young people in the congregation growing up in this culture and in this place, it will not be it will be harder for you than it has been for your parents and for your grandparents. It will likely get all the more difficult in the days to come. The more 
The more hostile people around us and even over us in authority become, the more their natural hostility against God is given reign as it is being given in our day, the more hostility you will experience as you obey God, the one they hate so deeply, the one they would crucify all over again if given the opportunity. In this world, we must obey God. That's going to mean a few things for us. First, obeying God is going to require of us a singularity of purpose. Singularity of purpose. Obeying God means that our allegiance is to one authority, one ultimate authority alone And you know from your study of history and of Scripture the kind of conflicts, the sort of difficulties that that sort of exclusive commitment can create. Remember Daniel? Having to disobey King Darius' edict that no prayer be offered to anyone else but the king for his singular obedience to God in this, Daniel found himself in a den of lions. His three friends, refusing to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, found themselves in a fiery furnace. Further back, we remember the Hebrew midwives. Obeying God because they feared the Lord and it put them at odds with Pharaoh. You know we could multiply the examples, but they all boil down to this. One singular loyalty, fealty, fidelity, to God and to God alone. One passion, to be God's man, to be God's woman, to be God's girl, to be God's boy. Connecting our city to Henderson is a piece of road we call the Audubon Expressway. It's named, as most of you know, after John James Audubon. Near the other end of that piece of road is the John James Audubon State Park, which preserves the woods where Audubon studied and painted birds from 1810 to 1819. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, brought Audubon to the attention of his congregation, saying, you may perhaps have read the life of Audubon, the celebrated American naturalist. He spent the major part of his life in preparing a very valuable work on the birds of America. He tracked these birds into their remotest haunts, painted them from nature, lived in the cane breaks, swamps, and prairies. Henderson was a different place back then. Uh, No dollar generals at all. Even among the red men, exposed to all kinds of dangers and all simply to become a complete ornithologist. When he was in Paris, collecting subscriptions for his new work, his diary was full of wretchedness. There was nothing in Paris for him, and the only bright dream he had was when he saw the stock pigeons building their nests in the garden of the Tuileries. 
the broad streets, the magnificent palaces, the pictures of the Louvre, these were nothing to him. The stock pigeons, everything. He came to London and was equally dull there. Not a single incident shows a comfortable frame of mind till he sees one day a flock of wild geese passing over the city. He wrote in London a paper on birds and he says, While I am writing, I think I hear the rustle of the wings of pigeons in the backwoods of America. The man's soul was full of birds. Nothing but birds. And of course, he became a great naturalist. He lived and he was willing to die for birds. We need to muster a band of ministers, Spurgeon went on to say, who live for only Christ and desire nothing but opportunities for promoting his glory, opportunities for spreading his truth, opportunities for winning by power those whom Jesus has redeemed by his precious blood. Men of one idea, these are they that shall do exploits in the camps of Israel. We need red-hot men, white-hot men, men who glow with intense heat, men whom you cannot approach without feeling that your heart is growing warmer, men who burn their way in all positions straight on to the desired work, men like thunderbolts flung from Jehovah's hand, crashing through every opposing thing till they have reached the target they have aimed at, men impelled by omnipotence. It will be a great day for the church when the members of all our churches arrive at such a glorious state of heat as that. That's what they had in Jerusalem here in the first century. And what we want today in ministers and members alike, a singular obedience to God that rises from a singular passion for God. Second, obeying God will require that you suffer for him. Luke mentions it almost in passing. You can almost miss it there in verse 40. But upon being convinced by Gamaliel to let the apostles go, the council calls them in and Beats them. This beating was likely the 40 lashes less one. It uh, was administered, according to one scholar, with a whip made of calfskin on the bare upper body of the offender. One third of the lashes being given on the breast and the other two thirds on the back. Whether the whip used in this case was one of those that we've read about studded with sharp metal pieces that shredded skin and muscle to the bone and exposed organs, or maybe the duller that inflicted shallower lacerations. I don't think we know for sure, but this was no light punishment. This was serious pain and lasting injury. And for it, the apostles rejoiced. 
They left rejoicing. Rejoicing, verse 41, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Try to imagine that, if you can. Rejoicing. An honor to be dishonored if it is for the name of Christ. Christ's church for now is a suffering church. Many other things it is too, but it is a suffering church. True enough, you and I have done very little suffering for Christ, though some of you really have known and felt the consequences of being Christians in your workplace, for example, or in the armed forces, or in your relationships, maybe in your family. But the church in other places, the kind of places for which we pray on Wednesday evenings and on Sunday mornings, Christians in China, for example, are suffering, are being tortured even this very moment in ways that I will not describe to you in detail. There are Christians being maimed and disfigured with blade and flame and acid in Muslim and Hindu-dominated places in India and in Africa. It's been this way since the earliest days. The late Dr. John Stott summarizes the history well for us. Under Nero, Christians were imprisoned and executed. He was from 54 to 68, Stott gives those dates, including probably Paul and Peter. Domitian, 81 to 96, oppressed Christians who refused to pay him the divine honors he demanded. Under him, John was exiled to Patmos. Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180, believing that Christianity was dangerous and immoral, turned a blind eye to severe local outbreaks of mob violence. Then in the third century, what had so far been sporadic became systematic. Under Decius, thousands died, including Fabian, bishop of Rome, for refusing to sacrifice to the imperial name. The last persecuting emperor before the conversion of Constantine was Diocletian. He issued four edicts which were intended to stamp out Christianity altogether. He ordered churches to be burned, scriptures to be confiscated, clergy to be tortured, Christian civil servants to be deprived of their citizenship. How little has changed. For thousands upon thousands of our brothers and sisters around the world still today. But Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if obeying God costs you and costs you dearly. Name, reputation, money perhaps, status, privileges, promotions, health, maybe even your life, Christian, will one day be demanded from you. Remember this when it happens. Remember, remember to rejoice. 
Remember to rejoice. Thank the Lord. Like your spiritual fathers and mothers have done. Like your brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are doing today. Praise God. Thank God for the privilege to suffer for Christ. Even something as small as being passed over for promotion. Because you're simply too much like Christ. For in so doing, you are suffering with Christ. And that is high privilege indeed. So, to obey God, we must be singular of purpose. We must suffer. Third, to obey God, we must have the Spirit. We must have the Spirit of God. At the end of this little cameo of Peter's sermon here, verse 32, Peter says, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Now here's the question. Of course, some of you are already thinking it. Is the Holy Spirit given to those who obey Him? Or do those obey Him because of the Holy Spirit whom God has given to them? And the answer is, Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Peter's calling on the authorities, on the council members, to the he's calling them to the obedience of faith and repentance, not unlike the way he called upon his hearers at Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But of course, we know from other parts of the scripture that no one believes. Or repents apart from the Holy Spirit having given him the gifts of faith and repentance. Here we must, as with so many things in the Bible, we must submit our minds to the scripture, not scripture so much to our minds. But here's the point. The same Holy Spirit who gave you those gifts of faith and repentance, who made you alive when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, who gave you a heart of flesh in the place of your heart of stone, he will also make of that heart of flesh a lion's heart. He will give you what you need to face any trouble, to face any suffering, any loss you endure. For the sake of Christ. You need not fear the day of persecution. No nail-biting Christians about the days that are sure to come. Unless, as I say, the Lord makes a huge change in direction. You need not fear this day, brothers and sisters. For one thing, you will not face it alone. And you certainly will not face it with your own little abilities and resources. The Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, and His supernatural strength are at work in you and will be on that day. For you that day will be, as it was for these faithful twelve, a day of rejoicing that you were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, said Jesus, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! Be glad! Your reward's in heaven. The apostles knew all that, you see. They'd heard it straight from Jesus' lips. But today... Right now, they know that the truth of those promises by experience. And they agree that the reality is even greater than any words that even Jesus could have used to convey it to them. And my brothers and sisters, mark my words, for I tell you now in the Lord's name, if you will follow in their train of singular suffering Spirit-led obedience to God. You will know it too. Amen.